Hello, and thanks for listening to this week's message from the Napoleon Church of the Nazarene, where we exist to help people take their next step in a transforming relationship with Jesus Christ. We hope that as you listen, you are both encouraged and challenged as you take that next step in your walk with Christ. Good morning, church. It's good to be here with you all this morning. Uh, we appreciate the fact, I appreciate the fact that you have allowed us to be a part of your Sunday morning worship this week. Um, if you are new, uh, if you are visiting for the first time today, welcome. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors around here. And you are joining us in the middle of a terrific series. This, uh, we are studying the Sermon on the Mount. And what's so interesting about the Sermon on the Mount is that it is quite literally a sermon that we are then studying so that we can give a sermon on the sermon. And this is a sermon that was given to us by Jesus himself. So it truly is studying from the master and how to get up here and do this. And so hopefully we, can, we are uh, living up to the standards set before us. But as we continue, I just wanted to encourage you. Uh, throughout this series, it's Matthew 5 through Matthew 7. Would you join us as we take this verse by verse, or at least try to take this verse by verse? Would you join us in this journey each week? Would you read ahead? Would you ask questions? Would you come ready to hear what uh, maybe is a different perspective from what you are reading? Um, this would only continue to edify your own spiritual journey. But as we get started, uh, you know, I'm... Uh, I'm 29 years old, in case you were curious. Um, in my 29 years of life, I have probably held more jobs than a 29-year-old probably should have held at this point in time. It's just one job after the next, and after high school, I, I moved here, I moved there, school had me doing this, this internship, this internship. I graduated, I moved to Indiana, I had a job there, then I came back, then I moved to Dallas, had a few jobs there. All of these jobs... Never being at just one job for very long, not because I was fired, but just life situations. Life situations had me going from next job to the next job to the next job. But when I was in Dallas, there was one particular job that required a bit more of a commitment from me. It was a ministry job. It was a ministry job working with youth. And this job I was actually at for 22 months. That, was, that is the longest time I've ever spent in one job, 22 months. The thing about it, though, is after about a year and a half of being at this job, I, in all honesty, was pretty unsatisfied. I loved working with the youth. It was all of the other relationships that came along with that job that kind of frustrated me. And after about a year and a half, I would go to my roommate, and this is in the heat of seminary for me, and I, I went to my roommate, and I told him, and I just confessed, I'm like, I want to quit this job. This is, not, this is not good for me, and I just feel like I'm only doing it halfway, and I just, I really want to leave. Not because I had something better in front of me, but because I just wanted to get out of that job, and hopefully something else would come up later. Well, my, my roommate then, he, he listened to me very graciously, and he Fortunately, he spoke great wisdom into my life. And he told me, he's like, man, if you, I know you're currently going under some dissatisfaction and there's frustrations there, but believe me, the greater path is actually sticking with this. Wait until something else comes your way, but stick to the commitment that you said that you would with this ministry. Stick with it for the youth, at least. And by the grace of God, as I look back on that job now, the job that I've held longer than any other job, 
I can see now that waiting was the best decision I had ever made. It was in the waiting that I never expected God to come and work and redeem all the frustrations, but it's because of the waiting, because my roommate spoke this wisdom into my life, because of this perseverance, God had created something beautiful in those last remaining months. He took those frustrating relationships, and yes, they were still frustrating, but he made them fruit-bearing. And it was amazing so that when I eventually did leave that job, I didn't leave it with burned bridges. I didn't leave it worse off than when I had gotten there, but I left there with fruit having truly been a result of the ministry. Something that would certainly not have have had happened if I had left. You know, as humans, we, when we experience displeasure, we often do anything we can to exit that displeasure. We go running in the opposite direction of any conflict. If we see something that is seemingly better than what we currently have, we do everything we can to get that very thing. We go, we're just gravitated towards it. We have this affinity towards having what is better, what is easier, what is less frustrating. The thing about it, though, is in the midst of in the midst of always looking for something better or something superior than what we currently have, we make rash decisions. We immediately see that the grass is greener on the other hill and we immediately jump the fence, not even thinking about what's going to happen to the hill that we're currently on. And eventually, when we're on this opposite hill, we're like, wait a minute, that grass wasn't so bad over there after all. And we immediately begin to regret the decision that we made in escaping the current situation. Oftentimes when we leave, we end up leaving someone or something hurt and rejected. And because we keep on chasing the next thing after the next thing after the next thing, trying to escape any potential conflict or pain, we never truly find out what it is to have a deep and fulfilling relationship with the people we are currently in relationship. And it's, I would argue, that deep, fulfilling relationship that we are all looking for. In the midst of looking for that deep, fulfilling relationship, though, it requires us to experience a bit of conflict. Amen? It requires us to go a little bit deeper than the shallowness of an easygoing, free-for-all relationship. And so as we study the Sermon on the Mount, as we study this sermon given by Jesus, we see that Jesus is actually inviting us to go deeper into our relationships. He's inviting us into a journey, a particular way of living that is unique to his kingdom, to the kingdom of heaven, which he is inviting us to. And what we're going to see is that as we continue to study the Sermon on the Mount, much of it, much of it is regarding how we treat and how we live with those around us, both in our immediate context and those outside of our immediate context. And so as we study the Sermon on the Mount and we realize that this is all about how, so much of it is about how we interact with one another, we then have to ask ourselves, what is Christ inviting us to do? What is Christ inviting us to do in our relationships and commitments so that we can experience kingdom greatness? You see, we have this idea of greatness in our own eyes, we have, in our own hearts, in our own feelings. We think greatness is as long as we are getting everything we could possibly want, then we are living the great life. 
The fact of the matter is, it's our feelings, it's our own desires, it's our own preferences of this world that keep us chasing after the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And we miss out on what it is to truly experience his kingdom greatness. And so last week, Chip reminded us that the Sermon on the Mount, the focus is not on behavior modification. It's all about heart transformation. We can't all of a sudden just start doing this to-do list of rules and say, okay, now we're living in the kingdom. No, what he wants to do is, is transform us from the inside out and so that we naturally, yes, our behaviors are changed, but our motivations Our motivations are at the root of that. But unfortunately, the Israelite people, as we're going to read about, as well as us today, we have been living in this idea that as long as our behavior is correct, as long as we can check off that moral rule to-do list, then we are good, then we're accepted. But the fact of the matter is, this mindset, this mindset of just simply following the rules Simply being able to check off that moral to-do list, this mindset, it, it leaves us no, no better than a child sitting in the back seat with his finger up to his sibling's face saying, I'm not touching you. When the rule is to not touch the sibling, we are there with our finger about this close to our sibling's face saying, I'm not touching you, I'm following the rules, and yet the parents very well know that the chaos still ensues even though they are following the rules. You see, the child, they've completely missed the heart behind the rule. And if they would just know, look, it's not about you touching them. It's about you just simply leaving them alone, not pestering or aggravating them any further. The parent knows this, but the child's like, eh, I'll keep my finger right here. And so today, as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to be in Matthew 5. Matthew 5, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 31. And we're going to see how Christ is inviting us to just do something different in our relationships, to be something different in our relationships. And, you know, I'm very grateful to Chip because he left me with some amazingly fun topics to talk about today. Divorce and making commitments. Um, Thank you. Someone realized that that was ironic. That was not. And so today, as we dive into Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 through 37, we're going to see that Christ isn't about just following rules. Yes, the rules are there for a reason, but it's so much more than simply following rules. He wants to transform our very being. So would you join me? Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 31, as we talk about divorce. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now I'll be honest with you. When I'm doing my personal devotions or quiet time or time with the Lord, I kind of just speed read past this. Uh, This isn't a a topic that I just kind of enjoy to meditate upon or, or sit in. And so when I realized that I was preaching on this and realized I had never truly sat in this before, my apprehension grew to a level that I I am not used to in preparing for a sermon. But I think it's important for us as we talk about divorce, especially from Jesus' context, we realize what divorce is to the ancient Israelites, to what it meant to those readers of yesterday. 
And in many ways, I think divorce back then is similar to divorce today. The reasons for it are at least similar. But there is a key difference. You see, divorce could only be initiated by a man back in the first century. Because women at this point in time, they had such a low status on the uh, social totem pole, there was really, they had no power or say in the matter. So this was only done by a man. And in, in that, uh, if we go back to Deuteronomy 24, back in the Old Testament, we see when the law was written, really, it allowed a man to divorce his wife for really no reason at all. If, if, if their wife was simply indecent to them, if a man looked upon his wife and said, eh, I'm not feeling it today, see ya. And this law, it gave a man the right to divorce his wife for that reason. Now, we are told here that there is a certificate of divorce. And actually, the certificate of divorce was actually meant as a means of protection for the woman. Because it was this certificate that then allowed her to then be remarried. Because if a woman who is very low in the social totem pole is not married, she has no means of provision for herself. She has no means of protection for herself. She is left in a completely and utterly vulnerable state within that society. And so at least there was some means of protection. It kept the man from just casting her out whenever he pleased. But where this certificate was a means of protection, it also allowed justification. It also allowed a, a man to be like, well, the certificate protects her, so we're good, right? I can get divorced as long as she is protected in some way. I mean, this mindset, this mindset was the man is He's following the rule, but he has his finger as close to the face of the sibling as possible and saying, I'm still good because I'm not touching you. And he has gone all the way up to that line and said, I'm in the clear. Even though, even though he is ruining and corrupting and cheapening what God has created. You see, and at this point in time, Jesus then, he doesn't add to the law, but he's trying to redefine the law. He's trying to change the heart of the law. And so he doesn't like this thought process. Because this mindset, this mindset of I'm going to keep my finger as close to the face of my sibling as possible without actually breaking the rules, this mindset, it causes chaos and further dissatisfaction. And he wants to invite his children, us, you and me, into something so much greater. He redefines the reasons for a justifiable divorce. He's, he, he's saying, look, instead of just always getting divorced every time you think that you see something better, instead of always getting divorced just because something is difficult or worrisome or boring, the standard now has become they better have committed sexual immorality with you. They, they better have been done doing something so detrimental, so terrible, that could possibly ruin your family. This is the standard by which you should be getting a divorce. And he's using sexual immorality as the key example. Now, this is, hear me out. This is why I wasn't necessarily so keen on necessarily talking over this subject. I do not believe that Christ is saying, hey, if you have a spouse who's committed sexual immorality, some form of infidelity, or is doing something currently that is ruining um, your family because of some sexual act, then go ahead and get divorced. I don't think Jesus is saying this. 
I don't think he's encouraging anybody to go and get a divorce. He's just setting the bar to the point in time, unless something of this nature is happening, you really should not be getting a divorce. As the crickets chirp. But also hear me out. I also, and I think this is so important, I also do not believe that Christ is saying, hey, if you are currently in a relationship, in a family where your spouse is doing harm, abusing, causing danger, doing something detrimental and endangering the family, that you must stick through that marriage until they commit some sexually immoral act. I do not believe that is what Christ is saying here. I do believe the heart in which he is talking is saying, look, marriage is something that is ordained by God in which he beautifully and uniquely creates something amazing. The standard should be so high for you to wreck that, for you to ruin that, that it should be equal to this idea of sexual immorality, of something truly destroying a family. But even in that, even in that, he's not encouraging us. He's not encouraging divorce. He's saying this is how beautiful marriage is. Stop just because it, uh, it, is, it is justifiable under the law, stop doing these things just because you have your own preference for something new and better. So if we get so caught up on what justifies divorce, we can have that argumentation. We can discuss, is it sexual immorality? Is it more than sexual immorality? If we're having those conversations and argumentation, then we become no different than the Pharisees who were concerned, as long as you're not touching the face of your sibling, then you're good. But you see, men had taken an institution of God, marriage, and they had cheapened it and corrupted it. And Christ is trying to show that when divorce occurs, it's not just fine and dandy because it meets the standards of the law. When divorce occurs, there are consequences that go well beyond you, men. And in today, men and women, there are consequences that when you get a divorce, it causes others damage and pain. In this case, the woman. Because when she would go to be remarried so that she can have protection and provision, she would then become a victim of adultery. And then the, the husband then, the second husband, would also be brought into that damage. Men had to realize that they were destroying what God had created and the fallout was so much more than just a broken marriage. You see, following the law kept the Israelite men focused on themselves. It created a heart of seeing how far they could go without quite breaking the law. And Christ wanted to invite them. He wants to invite us to something so much greater. He wanted the hearts of the people to be changed so that they could see God's beauty in the midst of trials and dissatisfaction and maybe even a boring marriage. The Israelites, they were God's chosen, yet instead of chasing after him and his preferences, they were chasing after their own preferences, what they wanted in the immediate. I mean, I think it's, I think it's important to know that at this point in time, in the midst of this sermon that Christ is preaching, he's not condemning those who have already experienced divorce. He's not casting shame or throwing shade on someone who had already experienced divorce. He was simply redefining what it meant to live a life fulfilled. Saying, I am reinviting you into this journey that right now, wherever you are at, you can experience my greatness in a new reality of my kingdom. And he's trying to get these people to understand that fulfillment is not determined in getting everything that we want. 
He's trying to get them to understand that fulfillment is not determined when everything is easy or when there's a lack of trouble or a lack of commitment or a lack of discomfort. He wanted the people to experience the greatness of persevering in the midst of dissatisfaction, to go beyond the shallow and experience his satisfaction even when things were difficult and tiresome. He wanted the people to see that, the, that God's satisfaction in the midst of difficulties and trials and painful times in marriage is so much better than the satisfaction the world could offer in breaking off a marriage. And honestly, for those of us who are single here today, I do not believe that this is simply um, a, a call to those who are married. Each and every one of us here today, are, we have relationships, we have friendships, we have family. And the same invitation is, offering, is offered to all of us. Because we've all experienced that relationship that is difficult and has trials and maybe simply is frustrating. And I would make the argument that God is inviting us to fight for those relationships. To find his greatness at a deeper level than simply avoiding conflict or to run away. You know, I once heard a pastor say this, and I should probably made a slide for this because it's a little play on words. But where there's no conflict, there's no depth. N-O conflict, N-O depth. But when you know conflict, K-N-O-W, when you know conflict, you begin to know depth. And that is, that is transforming. That is paradigm shifting. All of a sudden, instead of avoiding conflict, we're embracing for what it could be. We're embracing it for what it could possibly and potentially do for our relationship. You see, friends, today, we are God's chosen people. We are his church. We are his representatives, and we are called to represent his greatness. And it's in the depths that God's greatness is fully discovered. Christ is inviting us to, to no longer settle for the shallow relationships or a shallow marriage. He's inviting us to experience the beauty of God by going deep, even when we think that we're going to find satisfaction elsewhere. It's when we go beyond our own desires. It's when we go beyond our own preferences. When we begin to realize that it's in the middle of the commitments that we've made with our friendships, our families, and our relationships that we begin to experience God's greatness. So the question then today is, what relationships, what relationships are you so stuck on yourself, on your own preferences, on your own ideals, ideals? What relationship in your life are you leaving vulnerable and unprotected simply because you don't like it anymore? You know, this is what I was doing with my job, I, I just did not want to invest any longer. The relationships, they were frustrating, they were aggravating, the time, the, the commitment, everything that it required, I just wanted to leave. But it was in the midst of persevering and praise God I had a roommate who, who, can speak, who could speak wisdom into my life. It was in the midst of persevering that I then realized that had I left, it would have destroyed that ministry. Not because I was so significant, but because I, was, I had made a commitment and it would have caused detriment to, to the youth 
to those that were around me. But when I realized that it was no longer about me and it was all about diving into what God would have me do and represent him, I realized that God's greatness was truly in the deep. When we go beyond our own preferences, we not only discover, we represent the greatness of God. What relationships in your life right now? Your marriage, family, siblings, work, Have you so frustrated you just want to give up and yet you know that God is saying, look, keep pushing, keep pushing. Hear me out. This is not, there are are unhealthy relationships. (laughs) Let me preface with that. But not every frustrating relationship is an unhealthy relationship. And God would have us discern and dive deep and understand the difference so that we don't give up so easily, but rather keep on pushing on. Okay, that was, that was divorce. We got through it. We've made it through. Give me, somebody give me a nod. We're, we're all here, right? We're all still very good. Okay. Whew. Okay. All right, now we're moving on to another topic, but not so different of a topic. Because as we move on, we realize, we read about making oaths and commitments. We realize that the, the premise is still the same. It's how we treat others. How we treat others determines how we experience the reality of the kingdom of God. So we're in verse 33. Verse 33 says this. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And so, once again, we come to this realization that Jesus is talking to the Israelites, God's chosen people, his representatives. And through, through the Israelites, through the people, the rest of the world should have been able to see God's greatness. And no one wants to taint a bad or a good reputation, let alone taint the reputation of God himself. However, just like any human being, uh, we are in the midst of this. We always are looking for success, significance, in the easiest and quickest way possible. The most, the least difficult path. And it's funny because we, we actually see this. Uh, so the first analogy was a child with his finger up at the face of his sibling saying, I'm not touching you. But there's also a thing that we also learn from that we as adults continue to do. Uh, uh, children at a young age, they'll make all of these promises, all of these big commitments. And they'll say, yeah, I'll do this for you. But the entire time, their fingers are crossed behind their back and they're already preparing for the way out of that commitment. And you know what? In the laws of childhood, this is perfectly acceptable. You can't unbind crossed fingers. This is a get out of jail for free card and they can stick to it. And you know, essentially this is what the Israelites were doing. This, and this was acceptable because at the foundation of it all, there's a hierarchy, if you will, of commitment making, of making an oath. The highest of the oaths were, I swear by God. And if you swore by God, you were going to do it. That was the most binding oath you could ever make. And you better not break that oath. But anything 
other than that was already this kind of like, ah, maybe, maybe not. We'll see. And so people would say, well, I swear by heaven. You know, it's not quite God, but it's pretty close. Or I swear by Jerusalem. Or I even swear, swear by my own head that I'll do this. But none of them were quite making an oath by God. You see, already in making commitments and saying, I'm going to do this, they were having their fingers behind their back preparing for their outs when they didn't follow through. And again, this was acceptable by society's standards. And Jesus comes in and says, no. Yes, it may be acceptable, and you may have been living like this for a while now, but this is not how we represent the greatness of God. Simply say yes or no and leave it at that. And for some of us today, we need to hear, saying no is okay. We have permission, we have freedom to say no, and saying no can be equally as glorifying to God as saying yes is. And so when people say yes or no, and they stick to that, they live through that, people around them then, the world at large, then sees the integrity of God lived out. But the fact of the matter is, when we make decisions, you and I, when I make decisions maybe, I am so focused on myself. I say yes because I want somebody to like me. I say yes because I'm too proud to say no. I say yes to doing something because I simply don't trust someone else to do what I think I can do better. And this is, if I'm being honest, got to be one of my biggest struggles I say yes because I want to be significant. I want someone to think of me better. What I don't realize is is that when I say yes and then don't follow through, it actually causes more damage to that relationship if I had just then said no from the get-go. But I'm so focused on my own reputation in the immediate, I say yes. The irony of this is I'm so focused on my reputation at the beginning, but when it comes to actually going through with the commitment, I'm so focused on my free time, I don't want to do it. And so I find, and I work so hard at finding an excuse to just back out. Have we been there before? Is this an art? This is like an art form of like, what is the right excuse? What have I said in the past? What is just serious enough to where they're going to let me out, but not quite serious enough to where they're going to follow through and asking me about why I backed out? And this is where I find myself so often, just thinking about myself This is where I was with my job. I had made a commitment. I got frustrated with that commitment, and I wanted to back out of that commitment. And this was a ministry job. This is where I was trying to do my best in representing God to youth and to a congregation of people. How is this the proper way of representing God? Is it acceptable? Was it acceptable? Absolutely it was. But is this truly demonstrating the integrity of God that he is calling us to? Is this truly what it is to experience God's goodness over our own preferences? And friends, I want to say it again. There is freedom to say no. Amen? There is freedom to say no. But again, what Christ is doing here, just as he was doing with the topic of divorce, what he is doing here, he is doing his best to invite us to look beyond ourselves, to look beyond our desires, to go beyond our own preferences. Because let's be honest, when we are just living in our own desires and our own preferences, it's almost as if it's a prison. And we are just imprisoned to everything that we would want, chasing after everything that we would want. But he is inviting us to go beyond that, 
to go deeper. And so let us not simply say no all the time because we have the freedom to say no all the time. Let us not say no simply because we want to say no. Let us say no when that no we know is going, no, no, yeah, there we go. Let us say no because we know that it will glorify God. And then let us say yes, not because it's going to make us look better to someone around us. Let us say yes because we know it's going to glorify God when we follow through with that. No fingers crossed, no lesser binding oath making, simply focused on who God is and what he would have us experience. Again, going beyond ourselves, going beyond our desires. Because the fact of the matter is, to use, um, to use the quotation of C.S. Lewis, I'm going to paraphrase this. It's not that our preferences are too great. It's not that our desires are too great. It's that our desires are too shallow. That the minute that things get rough, the minute that we face dissatisfaction or frustration, we just immediately give up. But God is saying, look, 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 we, I want you to go further in. You know, again, using the analogy of a child, it's as if, again, going back to C.S. Lewis, it's as if we are children satisfied with playing with mud pies when we have an invitation to experience an adventure around the world. Our desires aren't too great. It's that we are too easily satisfied with the things around us and the things that we can go running after so quickly. It takes more intentionality and thought process and thinking through an adventure around the world. And so therefore we say, ah, maybe some other time. It takes more intentionality. It takes more work. It takes more effort on our end to follow through something that we don't have a desire to do. And yet when we follow through, there is a greater good occurring. But we so easily get distracted and are satisfied by something else. Going through with commitment is the beginning of entering into the adventure with God. So let us say yes, and let us say no, not because of who we are, but because of who God is. Look beyond our own preferences. This is what Jesus is inviting us to do in our relationships. Look beyond our preferences. And so as we have gone through the Sermon on the Mount, each week we have come up with this this different prayer in which Jesus is asking us, inviting us to pray through. Lord, Lord, uh, may you be enough. Lord, have mercy on my life. Lord, keep me on mission. And so today our prayer is, would you pray this this week? Lord, take me deeper. Lord, take me deeper beyond my own preferences and my own desires. Lord, take me deeper into my marriage and my relationships. Lord, take me deeper so that I can represent your greatness to the world around me. Lord, take me deeper than my own desires and preferences and help me experience the depth of your beauty and your greatness. This is what God, this is what Jesus is inviting us to. That when we look beyond anything that could temporarily satisfy us and realize that in the midst of conflict, in the midst of frustrations, there is fruit to be gained, then we go deeper. What relationships are you leaving vulnerable and unprotected? What commitments have you said yes to or no to because you were so focused on yourself you were blind to any good that could potentially come from it? Would you go deeper this week with the Lord and experience his greatness? Father, we come to you this morning. And Father, we thank you and we praise you. 
Lord, would you give us the courage? Lord, would you give us the perseverance and the strength to persevere, to experience your greatness at a deeper level? Lord, would you help us to not be uh, so satisfied? Would you help us to not settle for the shallow relationships and the shallow commitments? But would you open our eyes and break our hearts to see what you see and to feel what you feel so that we could truly experience your kingdom here on earth? Would you make it a reality in our life today? We praise you. We love you. And it's through the power of your Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray all of this. Amen. Be blessed. Go deep. Thanks for listening to this week's message from the Napoleon Church of the Nazarene. We invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 9 or 10.30 a.m. for weekly worship and community with other believers. For more information about upcoming events or ways you can connect, find us on Facebook or visit us at napnaz.org. Have a great week.